Welcome into The Harvest. I'm Andrew Stroud. It's been said that before we can learn the right answers, we must first learn to ask the right questions. And this is definitely true when it comes to studying the Bible. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, John Snyder, and we take a closer look at the prayer Jesus prayed in John 17. There's a lot to learn from this passage. It's often referred to as Jesus's high priestly prayer, and it's unique as the longest of his prayers that has been recorded for us. But John 17 also gives us insights into how Jesus understood his mission, and specifically his work of discipling the 12 apostles. In that way, it's something of a blueprint for how Jesus made disciples. This is a bit of a different episode for us, but I hope you learn more about John 17, about how Jesus went about his work of making disciples, and even some insights on how to better study the scriptures for yourself. John, welcome back to the show. We've got um, a great conversation ahead of us. We're going to be looking at John chapter 17, uh, which is a pretty unique passage, but um, I'm glad to have you back on and that we're going to get a chance to have this uh, conversation. Yeah, one of my favorite passages, Andrew, and I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine doing it with someone better. So uh, the person who kind of really taught me how to study the word. So I'm really excited to look at John 17 with you, brother. I'm hoping that you and I throughout this upcoming year can have conversations like this one. So this is a bit of a a, a trial effort here where we're going to essentially do an on the fly Bible study. And this is a passage that both you and I have studied in the past separately and probably together. Um, But for the next 45 minutes or so, we're actually going to go through the text, make observations and then try to. Um, extract from it what we understand God wants us to to take from it, to change the way that we think and the way that we live. So hopefully folks will get something good out of what we discuss here, but also hopefully they'll get some principles of how to read the Bible more effectively. Yeah. And you know, this is actually kind of a little bit of a lost art, I think in our culture where it's almost like the Bible says it, so I do it. Um, But what if I have questions, you know, like, how, how can I actually get to this point where I have confidence that the Bible says it, then I can do it. Um, and, and how do we continue to learn how to like ask, what's the problem in this text? You know, there's some things that don't quite feel right in this text. How could I understand better what God's actually trying to say? So we try and do this pretty consistently in our groups where when we're studying the Bible together, can you just tell us the question that led you to that observation or like, how, how did you get down that discovery path? Um, so that each of us are better stewards of God's word. And it really is this adventure to, to hear and understand more about who God is through the scriptures. And yeah, I hope we get to invite people into that today. So looking forward to it, bro. Yeah, I think it's, uh, to, to your point there, Cecil, the, the guy who discipled me, and also he had a hand in discipling you. Um, yeah. But he once said that it's hard to get the right answers if, if you don't learn how to ask the right questions. And so... That's definitely true, I found, in reading the Bible, that we can read the text, but if we don't learn how to ask the right questions of it, then we can miss a lot of what God's wanting to communicate to us. And, it, and it's okay if we miss some of that. Like, we, we read the Bible over and over and over because we're constantly learning new insights. So it's not that you have to ask the right questions every time and get 
get everything that there is out of a text, but you do want to become more effective at reading the scriptures and learning from the teachings of Jesus as we go. So that's, uh, I, like I said, I hope folks, wherever you are in your understanding of the scriptures and in your involvement with them, I hope that these conversations uh, that John and I are going to have here this year and including today will be encouraging and that you'll get some ideas about how to better read the scriptures yourself. So John, you and I talked, I think what we'll do is we'll actually read through John 17 and there were several passages that we consider, but this is the one that uh, we wanted to start with. And we can talk a little bit about why we chose this one uh, as we go. But how about I read the first half of the chapter verses one through 12, and then um, you can read the balance of the chapter and then we'll start working through it. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with you where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, 
because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love which which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let me say a little prayer for us, John, and then we'll dive in. Sounds good. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words that have come down to us uh, through the centuries that were recorded in the Gospel of John. We thank you for this opportunity to have the time and the ability to read and to reflect. I thank you for John and for his uh, friendship and for this opportunity to draw near to you together and to learn from you. Lord, these aren't just uh, letters on a page in a book, Mm -hmm. but these are your teachings. And because you're alive today, we can come to you and ask you to give us insights and to teach us uh, new things and teach us what you originally wanted your disciples to know from this text. So we pray for your help in understanding your word this morning. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, brother. Well, as we, uh, as we did this first read through, um, were there any new things that stood out to you? We like to, to often talk about what, so what, and now what as a, as a great basic framework for moving through a text. So we start with what, just what are the things that stand out to us, the big blocks that, that we notice? And this can be anything from words that come up over and over um, to context if we know what's going on. So we'll, we'll have to give a little bit of the backstory here because John 17, we just started, but it's actually in the midst of a, of a much larger section of scripture mm-hmm. that all fits together. So the what is just identifying the, the main blocks in the, in the text. And then the so what is trying to discern, well, why is it important? What's, what's the, uh, the significance of what's being communicated? And then the now what is, well, what should I do about it? How should my values, my thinking, my actions change based on what I'm learning from this particular text? So let's start with that first question of what, what were some of the things that stood out to you as we were reading through this together? Yeah, you know, so the the first thing it actually just just stuck out to me as we read it this time, which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> since we always supposed to read the Bible in context, right? You know, um, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So spoken what words? Um, so he's talking about how he's overcome the world uh, to the disciples, um, and how costly this moment has to be as he's moving on to the cross. If we're talking about setting the setting here with kind of that whole back end of John really, you know, if you've got a red letter Bible, almost all of that is going to be in red as you move forward to the back end of John, Jesus constantly talking um, and and giving more and more truth about what's happening next. So he's directly on his way uh, to the cross. Um, But I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. When he had said these things, he begins to pray. Um, and it, it just strikes me that there's no, um, there ought not be any kind of uh, disconnection between having faith and having peace in the midst of tribulation, like prayer. Hmm. I, I can only imagine what Jesus's um, thought process is as he's getting ready to head to the cross, which is going to be this, you know, monumental moment of his life and the kind of the crowning moment, right, of of why he was sent um, to the earth. But then also thinking about the men, thinking about what would happen after. Um, so even as he's exhorting the disciples, 
and telling them, I've overcome the world, you can have peace. He enters into the place where he knows he can personally have peace into the presence of the Father. And he answer, enters into prayer with that as, as its immediate context. Hmm. Uh, it's, uh, I like that, man. And, and you're right. That's a great way to set the, uh, the overall context. If, if you do have the, that red letter Bible, then you'll, you'll quickly see that really from chapters 17 all the way through the following chapter, chapter 18, but especially John 13 through 17 is all one uh, section of scripture. It's, it's all Jesus's interaction with his closest followers, the 12 disciples um, from John 13 through John 17 here. And then as we move into John 18, you actually see him being arrested. You see him being brought before the high priest. And so it really does kind of move into the next scene, so to speak, of the story, which is his trial, his execution, his, his burial. But John 13 through 17 really captures for us Jesus's final hours with his closest disciples. And, and that is significant. Now, John uh, 13 through 17, I'm sorry, John 13 through 16, those four chapters actually give us the, the longest continuous section of Jesus's teaching to the 12. And I think the longest section of Jesus's teaching period. Mm-hmm. So this is a very unique passage in the Gospels because we see um, the longest running shot, if you will, of, of Jesus in action and Jesus teaching. And it's a very intimate uh, insight or intimate um, behind the curtains look at his, at his interactions with the 12. But I do think that's important for a couple of reasons, John. Mm-hmm. One is that as we move into chapter 17 here, um, if we, I often say, especially when you're reading narrative sections of the scripture that a good mechanism for studying it is to imagine that you are a director and you've been tasked with shooting this scene for a movie or for a short video. And that'll really help you learn how to study the scriptures, believe it or not, because mm-hmm. you have to think through all of these basic what questions. And so you, you have to discern, well, who are the who are the cast of characters that you need to have in this scene? So in this scene, you would have Jesus and you would have 11 of the 12 disciples because at this point, Judas had already left to betray Jesus. And so you've got Jesus and his 11 closest followers. That's important. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. And the setting at this moment is that they're still in Jerusalem. Um, They are either in or near the upper room where they had just had the, uh, the Lord's Supper. And so uh, we know that because in the next chapter, it says that they depart from that place and they head over to the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where Jesus will eventually be arrested. Um, so you have to know the cast of characters, the setting, and then, of course, you have to know the script. Or what is it that's being said? What's, what's being talked about and who's saying it? And here, Jesus is doing all of the talking, but it's in the presence of his disciples. Um, but it's not to the disciples, which is the other thing that's really significant here, because 13 through 16, it's all directed towards the disciples. And now he shifts in chapter 17. He's still speaking in the disciples presence because we have it recorded here, but he's praying to the father. And so those are some basic contours that can maybe help set the stage before we dive into what's actually being said. 
Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I, I love how you just kind of threw out there, hey, he's not praying this in the garden. You know, you, you've wrecked some people there with that. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But an interesting, like careful reading of the text there. Um, one of the things we learned in Israel when we traveled together in Israel, Andrew, is, is to get into the practice of reading the Bible with a map. Mm. Um, and, and kind of, okay, where is this taking place? So when you're beginning to talk about plot, you actually placing it back in its particular location. So you, you would know that when it says that the disciples went across the book, the Kidron, the brook, um, then there was a garden. But you're going from, from one side of the city across the brook to where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So that, you know, Scott Young would say that's a little fun fact. Um, <laughs> we're, we're both mutual friends for him. He always had one of those almost in every Bible study, uh, fun fact. but. So when you're reading the Bible, one of the things that can really help you is actually having that map out with you. So, you know, where the, if we know where the upper room is and they're going somewhere else, that'll actually help you visualize some things and recognizing it's a story. It's just not a text that we study. It's a story that we're entering into. Um, it's just so critical. So part of that story, I think what, what we'll get into is that it's really this kind of briefs like an after action review, you know. In the military, right. we, we just use this phrase AAR, you know, that we're constantly going, okay, well, what happened? You know, um, what, what was the mission? Okay, was the mission accomplished? Okay, what would we like to keep? What would we like to, to step back away from? What do we need to change? So really in this prayer, you almost kind of get a report to the Father. And then you also get, but Father, would you continue to supercharge my efforts? Would you continue to be at work? Would there be a, a result from my from my work, would you continue to be glorified yeah. um, by what I've already done? So you kind of get this after action review um, from Jesus here in John 17, which is pretty unique. Yeah. So John, after action review, I don't think that's exclusively a military term, but I, I do know that okay, it's good. one that would be very familiar to our <laughs> listeners who have been in the military. But for those who may not be as familiar with what an after action review is, you want to just take a moment to explain what that is and, and why you would call John 17 something similar to an after action review? Yeah, you know, I just I just think um, when you have something very clearly given to you as a mission, you know, this is generally how it would work in, in the military. Um, you would just after every one of those things happen, you, you would stop and just kind of take inventory. All right. So what was the mission? It was this. OK, did we accomplish the mission? Yes or no? That's actually a yes or no answer. It's, it's not a real complicated one. What did we learn? And then maybe some some people would say, what are three sustains or three improves, which kind of limits the conversation so you're not all over the map and like uber critiquing everything. Um, but but what you see in this prayer is Jesus had a very clear job to do, given him from the Father. In fact, he actually says that, right? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do there in verse four. And now, Father, glorify me in my own presence. So he's, and now there's this next step. So you kind of get, this is what you gave me to do. This is what I did do. Will you continue to bless the efforts? So I don't, hopefully that, that brings a little clarity to that idea of an actor after action review, but it feels that way as you read the text. <laughs> I did this work, you know, um, and then he actually describes all the things that he did do. Right. Um, but then he's asking God, would you continue to bless it, continue to glorify and be at work uh, with these men. So, yeah, I think that is a very important insight into understanding this particular chapter. Um, this is often referred to as Jesus's high priestly prayer. In fact, if you have a, in my Bible that I'm looking at right now, that's the title above John 17 is the high priestly prayer. 
Um, why do you think they call it the high priestly prayer? You have any thoughts on that? Oh, man. Well, I do know it's the longest prayer, you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah. It's the longest recorded prayer we have of God. And interestingly, um, you know, when his disciples ask him to pray, you get this real quick little snapshot, maybe a model for prayer more than more than like that. We yeah, the Lord's reciting. Prayer, you know, our Father who art right. in heaven, the very <laughs> yeah. short. So, so, but here we have a, we actually have a prayer of Jesus and yeah. it's, it's, it's different than what we see there in Matthew chapter six. Yeah, and he's wide open before the Father, right? So, you know, if you just think about the idea of a high priest, you know, the high priest was was given to to represent the people before God. And what do you know? The high priest of all high priests, you know, the high priestly prayer here is Jesus representing the work that the Father gave him, and that work was deeply connected to the men. And he's praying and pleading to the Father on behalf of the men and the world and those who would come after. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking that. Thoughts, I mean, it's so not, I'll let you take it not, from there. I just thought it was curious. It was just something I haven't really asked. I was thinking about last night. Like, I wonder why they call it the high priestly prayer. And I wanted to get your <laughs> input. I, I think that's. I think that's right. Um, in in my thinking, as I've reflected, I, I do think it's because Jesus is interceding. He's standing in between the Father and in the immediate context, these 11 faithful disciples, but then he does expand it. I would say this prayer is almost um, bifocal. You know, you've got the immediate people that he's praying for, which I, I wanna talk about that. We'll loop back to that too. Um, but he also expands it later on. He says, I don't pray only for them, but for those who will believe in me through their word. And so, um, so he, he prayed for us as well. So in a sense, Jesus is praying for all of the believers throughout all time, even though he's, he, he starts by praying specifically for these men who the Father had given him out of the world. He does eventually expand that, and it, it becomes both a larger prayer in terms of who he's praying for and then a larger prayer in terms of the, the ultimate end that he's praying for. He's, he's praying that the world may know, and he's praying that that we might share in his glory and be with him where he is. So there are these future elements to what he's praying, um, which I think makes it um, a high priestly prayer in the sense that he's praying for all believers for all time and with ultimate mm. ends in view. But I do think that we can so quickly, it's possible maybe that we move so quickly to that more big picture uh, dimension of Jesus's prayer that we miss the after action review that you're describing. And this is going to be um, something that I will say, as folks read this in your Bible, depending on which English translation that you have, I think that a lot of the, the modern translations lose some of the impact of this prayer because they try to make the language more inclusive uh, on the basis of gender. Um, and I think that actually takes away from um, what Jesus is praying here. So when he says, when he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, you're right. That's something that stood out to me. I just wrote down the work, you know, the, as I was reading, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. Like there was a work that, that Jesus had been given by the father. And Jesus says, I've accomplished it. So at this point in the prayer, and again, this is before Jesus has been arrested put on trial, crucified. At this point, there was a work that Jesus had been given and Jesus says, I've accomplished it. So it's done. Um, and 
And then immediately he rolls into this idea of manifesting the father's name. And then in my, my Bible, it says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now, I, I, just to put you on the spot a little bit, John, what, what, what English translation are you reading out of? So I'm in ESV right now this year. So I'm reading ESV this year, a little a journaling Bible. So I got people. I've manifested yeah. your name to the people. To the people, right. Which is a more expansive word. And in a sense, I do think it's, of course, Jesus did do that. He did, he did um, manifest uh, the Father's name to like the broader group. But if you understand the, the context of all of these chapters, that it's Jesus and his closest followers, it's Jesus and the 12, and then ultimately it's Jesus and the 11, the context mm -hmm. would be he's praying for those 11 disciples specifically in these early verses. And the work that he's accomplished is going to be something that had to do with those 11 disciples. And uh, that's, that's actually really important because if we expand it to a, it's kind of like in John 13, when he says a new commandment, I give to you that you love one another. Like if you don't understand that he's talking to the 11, if you do understand he's talking specifically to the 11 disciples, he's not just talking to the crowds when he says that, um, then, then we understand that he's, he's saying to them very specifically, as I have loved you, you 11, because Jesus loved the 11 in ways that were unique, that in ways mm -hmm. that you see that all throughout the gospels, that there were things that Jesus did with and for the 11 or the 12 that the crowds did not get. And so what Jesus is doing in, in the new commandment in John 13 is he's instructing those 11, hey, think about the relationship that we've had and how I've loved you. Now I want you to go out and I want you to do that for one another. Again, it's not, it's not so expansive. Same thing here is that he even goes on to say, I'm not praying for the world <laughs> here in John 17, a little bit later. I think it's verse right. nine. Um, yep. I, do, I, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. So this idea that Jesus is being very um, specific in who he's praying about. Do you have any insights that, that you want to share on that or, or maybe um, any qualifiers that you want to share just based on what, what I was just uh, highlighting there? Yeah, I, well, I, I love this because I, I think ultimately is yes, right? It's both parties and we're going to see how the text itself takes us to these very clear, his very clear work and contribution to the 11 and then beyond to the world. But we ought to feel and sense and see the tension of, I care about the world, but I'm praying directly for the men. And it ought to kind of create a little bit of a crisis for you. Like, oh, hold on a second. I've, I've had John 3.16 memorized, and it's one of the most famous Bible verses on, for God so loved the world. Hmm. What, he's not, he's not even going to pray for the world? Like, you ought to read verse 9 and be like, wait a second. Not cool. <laughs> It, it ought to make it ought to like make you stop and say, "Oh, I don't, I don't get that." Well, why wouldn't Jesus be praying for the world? And inevitably, he, he does begin to pray about the world <laughs> later on, you know. But or that he sees the men as the vehicle to the world, you know, that those spirit-filled 
Jesus following men would make an impact for the world. But he knew that that was kind of a linchpin in the middle because it's the work that the father had given him to do. So I, I just think um, I'm, I'm reading a book right now with one of the uh, with with one of the guys here locally. And one of the things that he's constantly pointing out is um, you have to do business with problems. In fact, when you read a text, you ought to just stop and say, well, what problems do you see here? before you do anything else. So, um, and that's a problem for me. Like, you're not going to pray for the world. What, 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 what gives, <laughs> you know, because God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Right. You know? Right. So I, I just think even if you had the word people in verse six, like I do mm-hmm. verse nine ought to make you have a different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if you're, if you're reading carefully, much like, um, they left the upper room and went to the garden. You know, you're going to have a totally different picture of what's going on and where this happened. So I, I, I think, um, like, like a careful reading of the text helps you right. kind of say, I don't, I don't get that. Um, because that doesn't seem to jive with my concept of God. Now I might have a wrong concept of God mm-hmm. that uh, God is, you know, showing me, but I, I, I love what you're saying that there's a very specific prayer that moves very broadly that will affect the world so yeah and i think i think this is um a good reason why you want to perhaps read the text out of several different english translations because you'll start to notice like oh this is interesting like in in the new american which is a more word for word uh, so, so Bible translations take different approaches. Um, uh, if you think about it as a spectrum, on, on one side you've got uh, translations like the New American Standard, which are really going for more of a, a word-for-word um, translation from the original language into English. And then what that can do is it can make the text a little more choppy, and it puts more of the the burden of interpretation or, or trying to understand on you. As you read it, you have to basically discern, well, why is he saying that? And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's what they call dynamic equivalence. And that's where the translator has what they believe is the meaning. And so instead of necessarily translating it word for word, they, they try to translate thought for thought that but, but you see what's happening there. And in, in those cases, you've got the translator is trying to do the, the, the interpretation for you and then give you the final product. So perhaps it's a little bit more like fast food versus like, hey, if you went to the, the meat section at the grocery store and then you had to buy and prepare and actually fix your own food. Um, that's maybe word for word to, to dynamic equivalence. And and I've read both. I, I don't think that there's necessarily, you should don't only read one type, but I would say that uh, I like to study out of more of the word for word, and then I will reference the, the dynamic equivalent or the thought for thought, just to see like, hey, is there something I'm missing? And a lot of times if you, if you read those side by side, you'll get more out of it because you'll kind of see, but sometimes you'll see things that you actually disagree with. And so this is, this is actually, I think, a fairly significant one where um, in the effort to to be more inclusive, a lot of times that that's great. You know, it, it's it's fine. Like in many cases in this in the scripture, the text is more general. And so therefore, it doesn't matter if you use the word man or people. But in this passage, I, I believe he's talking about specific men. <laughs> and it just, it just so happens that, that they were all men, these 11. And once you expand that to people, you can actually lose 
the the insights of, well, what was he doing with the 11? Because I, one of my views of John 17 is that it is an expansive look at how Jesus loved the 12. So when Jesus mm-hmm. says the new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, you can ask yourself, well, how did Jesus love the 12? I think you can actually go to John 17 and then you can do a study. Well, what, what did Jesus do? Because he gives us several dimensions of his work with the 12, the things he was doing for them that he didn't do for the world at large during his earthly ministry. So um, I think um, you, you touched on that with the idea of the after action review. So um, we can we can chase that down a little bit more, John, or if there's somewhere else that you want to uh, take the conversation, let me know. No, I love that. I, I, I do think kind of pressing into what did Jesus do, but uh, you, you have to, once again, a problem is I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You, you've not gone to the cross. I, and that's our immediate concept of the work. the work that Jesus was sent to do was the cross. Right. Uh, I'm not good at math, but that doesn't jive. He, the, we're not there in the story yet. Um, that the plot isn't finished, but somehow he's finished this work. They immediately have to ask the question, well, well then what is the work? Um, and then he spends a whole bulk of the next like smattering of, of passages to say, this was the work. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's pressing in to kind of what he did. Um, mm-hmm. So he manifested his name. So that, that, that very first thing is pretty simple. He, he showed them his life. He, he lived his life in obedience to the Father in front of them. Um, they saw the Father at work in his life, and they saw his obedience. Um, so that's you know, right there in verse 6. And then... You know, it, that, that's the beauty of the word becoming flesh and dwelt among us is that we have a very clear picture of what it ought to look like to be in obedience to God um, because the Father gave us this gift mm. um, of sending Jesus so that we might know what it looks like. It, it, not just an icon, not just the sacrifice for our sins, but also the, the picture of grace and truth that we got to behold um, and, and this is us looking into what's it look like to be obedient before the Father. So he did that for the men. He's doing that for us. Every time we, we read a gospel story, every time we see Jesus referenced in the New Testament pointing us back to the gospels, and every time we're looking at the Old Testament, you're like, oh, that sounds like what Jesus did. That's pushing us back to, oh, man, this is we've beheld his glory, one sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he showed them his life. You know, so... I hope you're asking those questions. I hope when you're reading through, they're like, whoa, what? And freebie, um, verse three, this is eternal life. Okay, I'm listening. Um, <laughs> that they may know you and know, you know the one only true God in Jesus Christ. Wait, 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 doesn't eternal life happen after I die? Then I go to heaven. Uh, no, not according to verse three. Hopefully those things make you pause and say, whoa, well, what gives? My understanding of eternal life is I die, then I go to heaven. That means eternal Mm. Um, this concept is totally different. It's a, it's a qualitative life that starts right now and it transcends all of time. Mm. It just doesn't add time onto the end of your life. It makes the quality of life that you have right now meaningful. Right. So anyway, sorry, that was a little sidebar ramble, but those little things point you to different things. So what did he do? He showed them his life. What was the work? 
the men whom you've given me. So part of the work, if I'm going to extrapolate, we're going to so what now, right? Part yeah. of that work, if I'm making an, an application is whom has God given me? Right. That I need to manifest his name to. Uh, obviously, yeah. I will do imperfectly. Right. <laughs> unlike Jesus, right? So. Yeah. And and that's a, I think you, I love the way you said that. And I, I think it just highlights again that, that Jesus is talking specifically about the 12 the, the men that the father had given to him out of the world. Because if you go down, he actually says, while I was with them, this is verse 12, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And of course we know that he's talking about Judas there. So it's Judas, like pretty clear right. that, okay, the father had given to him 12. We know that because Jesus actually went up and he prayed all night before he chose the 12. Um, and then Jesus guarded those 12 and he, he, he talks about all the things that he did to them. I, you're right. He says that he, he, um, in verse six and in verse 26, there's actually almost like a bookend here where he says the first yes. thing that he says he did for these men was that he manifested the father's name to these 12. And then the last thing that he says in verse 26 was, I've made your name known to them and I will make it known. And I do think that that is connected to this idea of eternal life that because Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And that's, that's really what Jesus did. Jesus was the one and is the one who introduces us to the Father and makes the Father's name known to us. Um, I, I've often thought about it as if you had a very, you know, if you had a very famous friend. Okay, so Jocko, is it Willick? Is, what, what's his last name? Do you, do you know who I'm talking about? I, I got nothing, bro. Yeah, I know, so, he's, I know he's a kind of a YouTuber and like an influencer, but that's so all Jocko, I got. Is it, most, of my, uh, most of our listeners here will probably know who uh, Jocko is. But he lives here in um, San Diego. He's a former Navy SEAL still lives in the community. And yesterday I was meeting with one of the guys that I'm discipling. And one of the guys that he's discipling actually works with Jocko's son. So, so someone that I know knows someone who knows Jocko personally. And it would be as if... Uh, it's it Kevin be, Bacon here. We're doing like Kevin Bacon here. What, what's going on? Yeah, so, <laughs> but it would be like, oh, well, do you know... So if someone asked me, do you know Jocko Willick? I said, well, I, I know who he is. You know, I don't know him, but I've heard of him. You know, I, I, I'm aware of who he is. Maybe I've listened to his podcasts. Um, but if you had someone who could actually say, hey, I'm, I'm going over to Jocko's house tonight. Would, would you want to meet him? Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, let me let me. And, and so if you were in that position to actually introduce someone um, and, and make them known to someone else, I mean, that's in some very small, weird way. Like that's that's kind of what I see happening here with Jesus. Jesus was sent by the father uh, and part of his work was to to introduce uh, these disciples to the father. So when it says, I, I made your name known, if you think, well, what does that really mean? Um, I, I believe it's to introduce someone into a relationship where they not just, they don't just know of a person, but they actually, if you have, if you know someone well enough that you could see that you could meet them and actually call them by their name and they would know you. Now you're in a relationship. You, you actually have a relationship with that person. And uh, that's eternal life. Eternal life is Jesus is inviting us to, to, he, to introduce us to the Father, the one who sent him. Um, 
And that's the ultimate work that he's doing in our lives. I think that's why it's the first thing he mentions and the last thing he mentions. Um, Amen. So, yeah, I, well, and I love how it's connected to eternal life. So not something that you receive right. as a reward, but something yes. that you experience as soon as you meet Jesus. Qualitative experience about life. The quality of life is ultimately yeah. and completely changed right. because the because Jesus has manifested the Father to you. Right. It's beautiful, right? So, and the book ends there, even highlights it even more. <laughs> There's ought to be things that you're like, whoa. Look, what's sandwiched in there, right, between those bookends? I don't know if I don't know if there's a way just to make some quick observations. Yep. Uh, maybe, um, but so that he manifested your name. What else did he do? That's verse six, verse seven, and eight. Uh, he gave them the word, right? Um, right. John seventeen nine. I'm praying for them. He, so this wasn't the first time he prayed. You, you already highlighted that he had spent time in prayer with the Father before he even selected them. There was a focused prayer for the men you you had pointed out verse 12 he protected the men he guarded them he banded them together um verse uh, 17 he's praying again that they would be sanctified by the truth that so not only do they know truth but that truth is changing them and setting Mm -hmm. them apart um verse 18 right after that he says i'm sending them into the world so i've sent them into the world so so what has he done he sent them that's one of the things of the after action review Verse 19, he set himself apart for their for their sake. So as you're asking about this work and how does it right. how does it what's it actually practically look like? There's very clear things he actually says that he did. Yeah. Um, and that he's continuing to pray for. So there's a real beautiful thing here when you connect eternal life with the work that Jesus gave him, with the men that was given him, and then what are the very practical steps of that? There's actually nine really easy observable things that Jesus did for the men. Right. Which is just really just beautiful as you're, well, what do I do if God were to help me, you know, invest into someone else? What are the things that I could do for them? It's it's just so cool that it's in this text for us. Um, Yeah, I agree, man. I think that's one of the most exciting things about this passage that, that kind of moves us into the now what, so what, so what, now what, so the now what is, well, if I've been told to love others the way Jesus loved the 12, well, now I have some very practical um, explanations of, well, what did Jesus do? Well, ultimately, he introduced them to the Father. So he, he helped them enter into a relationship with the Father. And then what are these individual components of how he was discipling and investing in these men. Just like, just like you said, I, I've given them your word. I've prayed for them. I guarded them. Um, as you sent me, I sent them. So this idea of mission and, um, this, you know, last on last week's podcast, I had a great conversation with, uh, Brad Briscoe. And we talked about how the number one way that Jesus saw himself and describes himself in the gospel of John is the one who was sent. And how mm, we need to yeah. recapture that, that, that one of the primary ways that we should think of ourselves and understand ourselves as disciples of Jesus is ones who have been sent, sent into the world. And in fact, Jesus says that I, I do not ask the, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. So, so Jesus isn't trying to evacuate us <laughs> from the, uh, the, the war zone. He's actually sending us into this world to be his, his representatives, just as the father sent him. And so you're right. It actually gets, it becomes very exciting to say, well, what was the work that Jesus is describing here? It's very, it's specifically the work of 
discipling the 12, the men whom the father had given to him. So you're right. We can basically take from that. Well, Lord, who have you entrusted to me? And if, and if there is no one, why not? You know, and Lord, would you, would you do whatever you need to do in my life so that Mm -hmm. I am Mm -hmm. someone that you would be willing to entrust uh, others to so that I can help them the way Jesus helped these 11 disciples. And then and then begin to actually figure out how can I do for others what Jesus did for the 12. Yeah. I, I know you had, um, you had a word picture, John, another huge word that comes up a lot in the gospel of John. And certainly it comes up here is the world. He talks a lot about the world. So even though we've been really sort of dialing in and really, really focusing on, okay, Jesus and the 12, you know, that's not exclusive from the world because then you can pan back out and Jesus talks quite a bit about uh, the world. So I know you had some thoughts on that. What were some of your insights on uh, this idea of the world and what Jesus tells us about it here in John 17? You know, there's 18 times here in this 26 verses he uses that word world. So I don't know. I don't know what the timer was if we would have started the timer. Um how many how many times and how long does it take to say the world 18 times you know so if, if let's say it's three minutes it took us to read it right you know if i said the same word over and over and over again it would draw your attention to it I mean, that's a great tool in bible study you know what is repeated what word right. is repeated over and over and over again or what is contrasted or um what might be parallel um, so those can be helpful. Like, you know, darkness and light is one of those easy ones. If you were to read, you know, parts of different parts of the scriptures. And interestingly enough, this tension of the men that you've given me, the work that you've given me and the world is, as, as those things it's, it's repeated and it's kind of contrast and it's in tension with one another. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that's probably the tension in which Jesus lived his life in as he walked the earth. So as I'm studying and thinking through this, um, he was remarkably constricted to being fully man, even though he was fully God, <laughs> which is another one of these concepts. Maybe I shouldn't have brought that up, uh, but <laughs> but just, just the idea that imagine having the desires, the concerns, the knowledge of who God is, but also being restricted in his ability as a man to be in certain geographic areas and only be able to contribute to certain people at a certain time. Mm. Well, guess what? We still, we have those exact same limitations as Christ's followers, but I sure hope that we still hold the same tension that Jesus does um, in this text is that he is thinking about the men, but he knows those men and they are people, right? That's not just men. Let's make sure that's clear, you know, in our inclusivity that men and women will take this message and will introduce people all over the world to Jesus, will manifest Jesus to the people in their lives. So I think a vision without the world is a non, is, is not a Jesus vision. Um, so in d- discipleship, disciple making leads us to the world and we, we actually invest in such a way that the world has changed. My, one of my favorite definitions of, of a disciple maker is what is a disciple maker? A disciple maker is, is someone who sees the world through one man or one woman and then invests with that hope, invests with that being the results. So mm-hmm. our prayer is like a verse like Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth would be filled 
with the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. That's a mm-hmm. world vision. So investing in the few for the sake of the many that the world may know. Right. So yeah. you, you see that here. You've got Jesus who invested in those whom he's given given in verse six. And that that there would be those who believe in, in them through their message that would believe in Jesus through their message in verse 20 that the world would, be, would believe in verse 21 and verse 23. So you have a picture of four generations, much like you would see in like Second uh, Timothy 2, 2, or one of these kind of real clear pictures of generational ministries and investment. But here it's that the world would believe. The result is every soul, um, every person understanding who Jesus is and, and being having the opportunity to have that, you know, being manifested before them. Jesus and the Father. So I love the tension there because it, it draws us to a deeper heart of God. It's not just a select elite crew, but that, that that crew is supposed to take the gospel somewhere. And if we let the Bible speak in that tension, it actually takes us where it wants to take us instead right. of just being dismissive, right? Um, of like maybe these problems that we might see. I don't know. What right. do you think? No, I, I like that. So it's almost as if Jesus because we, we talked earlier about how Jesus specifically says, I'm not praying for the world, but for the men. Um, and it was specifically the men that he had just spent three years investing in and discipling. So he's not praying for the world. He's praying for the men, but he's praying for the men so that the world may believe that you right. sent me. That's what he says in verse 21. Uh, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then, like you said a little bit later, so that the world may know that you sent me. Verse 23, which, so yes, he's praying for the men so that the world, he's not praying for the world, he's praying for the men so that the world may know, so that the world may believe. And so it isn't that Jesus doesn't have a heart for the world. He does. He, he has a heart for the world. He so, God so loved the world that, that he sent his son into the world. But we, we sort of get into... Um, this may be a little bit too um, reductive, but means and ends. So, so the end is so that the world may know, so that the world may believe. But the means is going to be through these men, which is pretty wild. You know, Jesus came down, spent oh, about man. 30, yeah. 33 years on the earth. Um, and what he left behind were a handful of disciples spearheaded by the eleven. Uh, and so he didn't leave behind a world that knew <laughs> that that God himself yeah. had just walked on the earth for 30, you know, three plus decades. What he left right. was a very small seed. It's almost like a mustard seed um, that was going to grow and become much greater than what he planted. And I think in the same way, what we can take from that is. If you try to change your city, if you try to change your school, if you try to change your unit, your workplace, um, that's going to become very overwhelming, much, much less the world. If you're trying to reach the world, well, how do you do that? Like you can't reach the world. Um, but if you understand that there are individuals that the Lord is going to entrust to you, the men, the women that he's going to give you out of the world, and your job is to invest in them, but you can connect that to the bigger picture and the bigger desire that God has for the world. Now, mm. now you're plugged into what we see here from Jesus, uh, his heart for the world expressed 
through his commitment to the men that the, the father had given him out of the world. Amen. Amen. Yeah. You know, in, in deeply connected to that is what I think I saw in 15, 18 and 20 um, of this chapter is that his followers were to remain as sent ones, just like Jesus was a sent one. And right. if you if, if all followers and everybody is sent, every follower of Christ, he's obviously talking about the 11, but by implication, those who believe in him through their message. Right. That's us. Every Christ follower remains on this earth as sent ones. Guess what that does? It actually brings you back and connects you to verse three. This is eternal life. Um, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? This is eternal life right. that they may know you, though. And they're right. the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The quality of life, living as a sent one who manifests the name of, of the Father to the people through the message of Jesus, is eternal life. There, there's this quality of life um, that comes from being a sent one on this on this side of heaven. Um, yeah. That, that, that starts, that kind of kicks off eternal life now. I, you know, there, there might be some dangerous things here that, you know, some implications that, you know, some theologians, doing, you know, giving us the side eye on over. But just <clears throat> being a sent one, understanding there was the work of Jesus, connecting that with the men, knowing that those 11 and knowing that was always meant to give the world of which we're a part of. You know, this thing worked. That's the other thing that we yeah. get because we're on this side of history, right? Yeah. So he gets to do an AAR in his present moment. We get to do an AAR with his, with tons and tons and tons of time that has passed, 2,000-ish years. Um, and we get to say, whoa, this thing yeah. worked. But right. there's th- this is another one of these, you know, what, so, you know, so what, now what? Another one of those, now what is trust Jesus's plan. Yes. We get to look back and say, whoa, 11 people. Right. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, obviously, with the Lord at work, ultimate chess master, turn the world upside down. Hmm. Um, I, I don't I don't I don't need to be tempted. I shouldn't be tempted and I shouldn't try and find a different plan. Yeah. Um, we get we get the benefit of history that says, whoa, this this movement started from 11 and we're sitting here talking about it and you have a whole bunch of listeners, you know, talking about it and hopefully our friends are talking about it, you know, that as a result of 11 people's efforts and as a result directly of Jesus's prayer. Yeah. If we could hyperspace back and put ourselves like a fly on the wall as Jesus is praying this prayer in real time in John 17, I don't, I, I think we could be very easily underwhelmed to say, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus says, I've, I've done it. I've accomplished the work. Well, what, 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 what have you done? These right. 11 yeah. guys, here's what I, here's really? what I did. And, and that's wow, my great plan job for the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but you're right. Um, if we, if, if all we had was that snapshot, this, this man, Jesus praying, and he's got 11 other men and they're on the backside of the Roman empire, uh, you know, praying the night before he's going to be killed you know we i think very few people would be impressed with that the impact of jesus's life at that point uh particularly as it related to these 11 men you know like people people who would have uh assessed his impact probably would have done so more around his popularity his miracles um 
more of the, the, the crowd aspect and the spectacular aspect of Jesus's life mm-hmm. up to that point, they, they probably wouldn't look at those 11 men and say like, man, that's the, that's the crowning achievement of what Jesus accomplished and what he's leaving. But you're right. We're not the fly on that wall. We're actually sitting here 2000 years later, literally on the other side of the world from where this was taking place in John 17. And we can, we can discern that, man, this was a pretty effective way <laughs> that, uh, that yeah. Jesus was taking. The, the, the work that he was doing with those 11 was, um, was a meaningful work throughout history. And mm-hmm. um, I think you're right. What we can often, I, I see this in myself, that we want something bigger. We want something more, um, more um, effective, more, in our minds, meaningful. In, in terms of the right. impact that we want to have in life and the, and the impact that we want to have for Jesus, rather than saying, man, if I could just follow faithfully in the footsteps of Jesus and what he is outlining for us here in John 17, that's the way that the world is going to know that the world's mm-hmm. going to come to believe. I just need to be faithful in the same way that Jesus was faithful in his uh, investment in the people the father had entrusted to him, the men. And that, again, I think that's why it's so important to, to pick up on the idea that the men whom you have given me, that's, that's the immediate setting for this, for this passage. Um, and, and I do think that we can actually miss the grandeur of what we're being invited into because it doesn't seem grand in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's just so many temptations in our microwave culture, you know, what's got to happen faster. We've got to figure out a better way. Um, right. You know, it's, you know, but it, it really ought to grieve us. You know, I just, I feel a little sad, you know, I, just to be honest, you know, how we've kind of been duped into other things right. less than Jesus, which is so typical of life. You know? Yeah, it can, it can grieve us. And I, I think you're right. You know, we live in a microwave age where the age of instant, and we also live in the broadcast age where, so mm-hmm. we have this, we have this, you know, the, the age of scale. That, oh, well, we can leverage, we can, we can, um, we can make a podcast and we can put it out to thousands of people. Um, but we can actually miss the, the small, slow, but truly meaningful work that God is actually calling us to do, which is to faithfully make disciples over the years of our lives. And if we do that, then what you see is you begin to look back and, and you can see and we're getting older. So we can actually look back and we can say, out of everything that's happened in my life, what, what, where is the mean, where's the significance? And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know about you, John, but it's, it's very clearly the relationships that um, God has allowed Amen. me to, to, to have and to be a part of over the years of in, investing in um, younger believers and helping them walk with Jesus, come to know him, walk with him, and then be sent out themselves just as Jesus did. So it wasn't just yeah. Jesus and the 12. He was sending them out just as he had been sent uh, by the Father. So... Well, any uh, last thoughts as we kind of wrap uh, this conversation on John 17? Well, you know, I, we've used this phrase that you know, we, we kind of had five rules for Bible study. I don't know if you remember these or not, but, you know, one of those is it must lead to application. 
Um, so the Bible's not just given to you to given to us to make us smarter or to make me smarter, but instead is to help me become more like Jesus. So hopefully it goes without saying that one of the easy applications from this text is to pray. <laughs> um, but I, I do think um, asking some other questions can draw you further in application. Do I feel like I'm experiencing eternal life now? Do I have a growing understanding of the work that has been given me to do by God? Who are the people that God has brought into my life? Um, and how would I manifest the Father's name to them? And then mm-hmm. how, how confident am I, am I in those maybe those eight to nine things that Jesus clearly says to the Father he did for the disciples? Can I do those things? Do I have confidence in my ability to do those things? And then lastly, do I pray and think about those men and women in such a way that the world is the end state, that the world would know Jesus? Um, And look, there's a whole myriad of a thousand things we didn't touch in this text, but those are some of the big rocks for me. But um, you don't have someone that God's brought in your life? Pray. You don't know what to do with whom God's brought in your life? Pray. You don't... (laughs) You're not experienced the quality of life that we're describing? Pray. You know... Um, Mm. You feel the world is overwhelmed and it's a dark place. Pray. You know, there's, um, it, it's been said over and over again, the most talked about, but the most, but the least practiced, mm. you know, resource for, for fulfillment or spiritual discipline is prayer. Yeah. Um, and I know that's been true in my life in different seasons. Um, so in, anyway, I, I just think as we think about the text, continuing to ask the questions of, wow, this seems to be a truth. That truth isn't true of me. Why? Hmm. Um, and then how do I make the truth of the scriptures and the, and the truth that I'm experiencing more congruent right. and bring them together? So Yeah, trying to see the, the truths that God has given to us in the scriptures and then trying to... Um, orient ourselves so that they're true in our lives. What, what we see in the scriptures, we can also see in our life. That's a, uh, a great, um, a great way of thinking about faithful discipleship is, um, being able to see it in the scriptures, then being able to see those same aspects in our own life. Uh, I think those are great questions going back to, you know, it's hard to get the right answers. If you don't ask the right questions, you know, you gave, seven or eight questions there that I, I hope people will take note of and, and reflect on in this passage and that they can serve as a, as a good example for other passages that they might be reading or studying. Um, my final thought is just this idea of being sent and that Jesus mm-hmm. was sent. I mean, even like we talked about verse three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Like he could have just put a period after Jesus Christ. And that's how most of us read it. It's very easy to miss the, the, the last part of that Jesus Christ, whom you have sent a little bit later in verse 21, that they may also believe in us so that the world may believe what that you sent me, (laughs) not, not just that they may believe in Jesus, but that they may believe that, that the father sent Jesus uh, into the world And then the same thing in verse 23, that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Mm. I I would encourage people to reflect um, on this idea of Jesus being sent and why is it significant? Why did he make such a big deal about it? Over 40 Mm -hmm. times in the Gospel of John, Jesus describes himself as the one who was sent. 
Again, if folks haven't listened to last week's episode, we talked about this, uh, Brad and I specifically. So it's there was no plan to um, <laughs> to touch on it again, but it just happens that we're in John 17. And uh, sure enough, Jesus is several times referring sent. to the fact that he was sent and that therefore we are sent. And um, if folks want to to listen to, to Brad's insights on why that might be, they can check out last week's show. So, hey, man, this was fun. This was a little bit of a new endeavor for us. So um, yep. I enjoyed it and feel like I learned. Hopefully folks who are listening or watching learned as well. If you guys have questions, those of you who are watching or listening, if you've got questions about what we talked about either in John 17 or just if you have questions about how to get more out of the scriptures in your own personal reading and study, you know, ask those in the comment section or send us a note on social media. And uh, we'd love to encourage and help you out in any way possible. So, um, all right, John. Well, thanks, man. We'll do it again soon. Yeah, great being with you, Andrew.